You're listening to The Pet Factor, news on pet health, wellness, and the latest in veterinary medicine. Okay, welcome to our next podcast of The Pet Factor. Uh, I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. I'm Brittany. This week we're talking about external parasite prevention. Before we even get into that, for those of you not watching us on YouTube, what do you have in your head there, Brittany? <laughs> it's my Halloween ball. <laughs> I, I dress up for the well, holidays. With a big orange bow with a pumpkin kind of in the middle. It's and then, lots of sequins. Lots of sequins. So. <laughs> so if you want to take a look at that, tune in on YouTube and you'll be able to see that. Maybe we'll put a picture of it on our, uh, our webpage here. <laughs> All right. External parasite prevention is what we're, what we're talking about that is the fleas and ticks. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are some preventers that actually do claim to repel mosquitoes, too. Oh. So that would be a benefit for heartworm prevention, but I'm not really seeing that be a, a huge issue Um for the animals if they're on a heartworm preventative. Right. Um, one of the things that uh, one of the uh, drug reps that comes by linked me up with is this website called um, petsandparasites.org. <laughs> and on there they have what's called parasite and disease prevalence maps. So you can click on your state and then your county, and it tells you how many animals were diagnosed with particular diseases oh, in the last year. And they actually break it down by month. You can get down into monthly data. And it's really interesting to see how many animals are actually turning positive for heartworms, Lyme disease, anaplasma, mm-hmm. ehrlichia. In terms of the intestinal parasites, the, the highest I saw was the giardia. It was like yeah. 9%. Oh, yeah. I think we got a positive one a few days ago. Right. So but we don't have any preventatives for that, so you'd expect yeah. that to be high. But we're seeing uh, about 1% of the dogs being tested turning a positive for heartworms, which is much higher than I would expect, mm-hmm. considering most dogs are on heartworm preventative, and we're seeing the dogs that are we're mostly testing them. And about, uh, I think it was 1% with Lyme disease, 2% with ehrlichia, so they're, they're pretty common things, and yeah. if you're not doing the preventatives, you got to be doing this. So external parasites are a year-round problem. It's not a seasonal thing. We used to do seasonal prevention. You know, you'd start when it got warm in the spring. You'd stop when you get some frost in the fall. But what we've been finding out recently is particularly with the deer ticks, the yeah. adult deer ticks that spread Lyme disease are most active between October and April in uh, the Chicago area where we are. Yeah. Um, we had a map that was showing how many um, days we had above freezing in January. And more than half the days we had temperatures above freezing, and that's when the ticks become active. And we certainly pull ticks off dogs every month of the year, and we're dealing with animals with tick infestations weekly, it seems like. This has been a very bad summer for fleas, mm-hmm. I think. Oh, yeah. And the bot flies, too. <laughs> That's a bit of a big problem. The, one of the big reasons that we want to prevent these external parasites is not just for the annoyance of having fleas in your house, but they do carry diseases that can be spread to the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can carry diseases that can spread to people. Fleas, are, of course, have been associated with the plague. Typhus is another disease that recently, and I think in Los Angeles, they've been having an outbreak of that because of uh, mm-hmm. partly related to the homeless, but just they've got more rats, and mm-hmm. the rats are, are hosting the fleas, and they're spreading these diseases. Bartonella is a bloodborne infection uh, in cats that causes anemia. Um, you've got um, tapeworms. The fleas larvae actually, and the fleas eat the, the tapeworm eggs from the animal's poop. And then the fl- animals eat the fleas, yep. and that's how it completes this life cycle. It actually has to go through an intermediate host, and one of the intermediate hosts for this species of, of tapeworms is the fleas. So cats in particular, because they're always grooming themselves, and they swallow mm-hmm. tons of fleas when they tons when they of. have them. Yeah, um, This is an interesting thing. You know, cat scratch disease where people can get really sick, what we've seen is that that can actually be spread through flea droppings. So the fleas bite the infected cat. They get the organism in their system. 
And then the, the cat could be sitting on a person. They don't have to even scratch them. They just the fleeter drops onto the person on an open wound, and they can get sick that way. Oh. So um, previously, you know, we've talked about insecticide control inside and outside, but the best way to prevent these is the monthly or mm-hmm. there's some things that are more often or less often than monthly, but the preventatives that you do yeah. once a month. And those continue to kill for an entire month. It's not like you're know, just killing the things they picked up the previous month. You've got the topical, which the first one was the Frontline uh, out to the market. They mm-hmm. upgraded that to Frontline Plus, and now it's Frontline Gold. Yes. So it's uh, doing much more pro- better protection against ticks mm-hmm. than it used to. So we have the oral ones um, that are every month. Mm-hmm. One of them is it goes every 12 weeks. They're going to be updating that every 13 weeks pretty soon. So it'll okay. be four times a year instead of four times every 11 months. It was really a weird thing that they did there. Um, there's the, the long-acting collar, Soresto, okay. which does work pretty well. Uh, you need to make sure you apply it properly, that it's tight against the animal's skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for people who forget to do monthly things, that's probably the next best thing to the long-acting injection like we have for the yep. internal parasites. Good for hunting dogs and... I think they're even good for, like, getting groomed, too. Yeah. Like they don't wear off just because they're wet or something. No, they can get wet. Yeah. That's a nice thing. And you can take them off for a bath. You can put them back on. Mm-hmm. You can take them off for a week and put them in, put it in a bag and put it back on. It's really kind of nice that way. Um, the the ticks are certainly spread their share of diseases, too, and we're, yeah. we're certainly testing for the Lyme disease and the anaplasma or lichia. But there's other diseases we're not testing for. There's a Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, Tularemia. There's a disease called relapsing fever that affects people. And one of the neat things is that they've been, uh, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has been using these prevalence maps that uh, parasite, uh, petsandparasites.org put out to track human, where humans are most risk for Lyme disease. Huh. And I'm always telling people if I get a dog that tests positive for Lyme disease, hey, those same ticks that are biting your dog are probably getting on you too. So yeah. make sure you're doing good tick protection. They're actually um, working on developing a uh, a test for Lyme disease in people that's based on the dog test that we use. Because oh. right now it's it's a big hassle sending it off. The one that we do, we do it right here yeah. in our clinic, and we can have the results within about ten minutes. Takes one drop of blood. Mm-hmm. We want to start these preventatives at eight weeks of age, just kind of like with the intestinal parasites. Um, there are certain med- some some of them you can't give to dogs less than six months of age, so we're kind of limited as to what what is available. And you don't have that cushion like if you're late with the heartworm pills for two weeks. You know, if the heartworm pills, you got that forty five day window where you can kill the heartworms. Mm-hmm. With the intestinal parasites, if you're not there on a monthly basis that product's going to wear off and they're going to be susceptible to fleas and ticks. So make sure you're really strict on that, or if you're um, doing the um, the every three months or the, the collars, that you have some sort of reminder set to yeah. make sure you get that next dose in. And then we need to talk about cats when we're talking about external parasite prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if your cat is spending any time outdoors, yeah. even if it's just sitting on a porch. Mm-hmm. Sitting on a window sometimes. Yeah, it's it's, it's going to have some risk of exposure. Yeah. If they live with other animals that go outdoors, mm-hmm. they're going to be at risk, and you have to protect them too. Um, they don't have an oral pill for cats. The one product uh, for cat for dogs that I think Proveco comes in a topical for cats that actually gets absorbed through their skin into their system. Mm-hmm. So it works like that. Uh, the Revolution works topically as well. Um, Frontline is another topical product that mm-hmm. we have for cats. So there's not as many for cats, but they're certainly out there. The Soresto collars are available for cats. Yes. That's probably the easiest one to use. Like we talked about last week with the internal parasite preventatives, the best source of these is going to be your veterinarian. They're mm-hmm. going to know what's going to be best for your area, what's best for your particular pet. 
that. Yeah. Again, they're providing us. We stock two or three different types of flea and tick preventatives here. And so they're going to find out what's best. And, you know, like I said, we have to stock a different one for younger animals than we do for yeah. older animals. We've got these great uh, rebates and coupon deals so that you're going to, it's very rare that you're going to get a better price online. Well, and then you know what you're getting that's best for your pet, too. Like, right. you don't want to buy something over the counter, especially for cats. They're so sensitive, and yeah. you don't want to get them a flea collar that's going to make them sick or get yes. some topical that's going to have, have ask, a reaction. If you do find something over the counter, ask, ask your ask vet your about pet. it. Yeah. Because there are some older flea and tick collars that have the permethrins and pyrethrins that can mm-hmm. make cats very, very sick. sick. Mm-hmm. They can make dogs sick. Mm-hmm. Newer chemicals, like in the stressful collars, are much, much safer. Mm-hmm. A dog can eat that collar and yeah. not get sick. Well, and then some of those collars, you know, you can't touch them. So if you have right. kids in the house and you have these collars on your cats or your dogs, and now you, your kids, everyone in the house can get sick because they're touching mm-hmm. it and not thinking about it, touching their face, right. eating with it or something. So just ask your vet first yeah. before you grab something. And I know a lot of the topical products you can find, like you can find the Frontline Plus in a lot of stores mm-hmm. now. But the oral pills, you're only going to be able to get by prescription. So you're going to have to uh, have your vet fill out a prescription. If you're asking them to fill out a prescription, hey, ask them, hey, can I pick up at the clinic? You're probably going to get a really good deal there. Um, And then, like again, you you don't have to worry about being damaged in shipping or some other problems there. Basically, every dog needs to be on external parasite prevention. I'd say at least half the cats we see are at risk. If you're... Worried about if you're already doing internal parasite prevention for cats, like for heartworms or intestinal parasites, you're covered. Mm-hmm. You got the the all-in-one product there. As of date, we still don't have an all-in-one product for dogs that cover everything. Yeah. Hopefully soon, but uh, we'll we'll keep you posted when something like that becomes available. All right, let's move on to our pet health news. Okay. All right. Um, the first two stories I have are just some interesting medical cases that are on the international scene, and I I thought they were very interesting, so I wanted to. Um, just talk a little bit about these because you never know what you're going to find when yeah. you're dealing with a sick animal. And one has to do with a, a, an unusual species that we don't deal with every every day. The first one's going to be about this nine-year-old dog in the UK came to the clinic with vomiting and diarrhea. So vomiting diarrhea, we're going to think maybe a gastrointestinal issue. Mm-hmm. They ended up having to do an ultrasound on this dog because they weren't seeing anything on the x-rays and the tests. And they found what looked like a linear form body or Look like a stick in their left kidney. Huh. So they did an exploratory surgery and they found a stick in the left kidney. It was a barbecue skewer. And they think the dog had actually eaten it a month before. Wow. Yeah, so this is a. So it's like. Lily, a little Yorkie. Like poked through the. It poked through the intestines. Wow. Worked its way through the intestinal tract into the left kidney. (laughs) Now it caused so much damage to her left kidney, she ended up having her left kidney removed. But she'll be able to do fine with just the one kidney and should make a full recovery. But that's just, you know, you got to be careful what your animals can pick up. And it, not everything is going to just pass right through. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. We I remember one time um, we did an x-ray on a cat and there was a sewing needle in yeah. the abdomen. And, I, and we thought it was in the intestines. We opened it up. The sewing needle was just floating free in the abdomen and it was rusting. It wow. had been there for a long time. Yeah. And it had worked its way through the intestinal tract and a little bit of thread behind it was in there as well. <sighs> That's crazy. I mean, it surprises me what some animals eat. It's like the one case where we had oh, the dog gosh. ate the sea glass. Yes. Like ate a bunch of beautiful, the uh, the daughter collected sea glass, beautiful pieces. And for some reason, the dog decided to eat half the collection. And it gets stuck in the, in the stomach. Uh, at least she got her collection back. I, I, Mom, they toss it. They toss it off. But you'd just be surprised what these animals get into. Like, at least that one was had food on it. Yeah. But. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Uh, a next story is actually coming out of Australia, and this is pet's name is Bubbles. But Bubbles is not your typical pet that you see in a vet clinic. Bubbles is a koi. A koi fish. Right, and Bubbles had a, a growth on its side. Um, they think Bubbles is between five and eight years old, and this growth was going to become a problem. The veterinarian was uh, sure that this was going to have to be removed or it was going to be an issue. But how do you do surgery on fish? I They use an anesthetic tank. So there's anesthetic in the water. The fish swims around in there, so this goes right, they absorb the anesthetic through their gills, and then this water's also got extra oxygen in it, so then they can take the fish out, put it on a sponge, um, and they can actually have water flowing over its gills while it's uh, anesthetized, and they can do the surgery. I think they're able to do the surgery in about 10 minutes, so that's a pretty fast growth removal. So they're just constantly putting the anesthetic water on it. Well, I, I think it takes maybe 10 minutes for the anesthetic to wear off. So they're just trying to keep the, the, the gills wet and right. keep it going so okay. it doesn't have a problem. But they could. On longer procedures, you could still keep passing the yeah. anesthetic over the gills and, and have them stay under anesthesia. Right. But no IV or anything like that. You know, didn't have an EKG or anything on the fish. But uh, this is something I think, um, and it looks like that they're using a, um, a freezing tip to kind of freeze the area so that there wouldn't be any bleeding and it would heal up. So Bubbles is doing fine and ready to go. They And it, this is surprises me. that They said it costs $300 to get that done. Oh. That's a pretty good deal if you got a koi fish that you love. Are we going to start getting into koi, koi surgery now? No. Oh, okay. I, maybe Dr. Anthony just wants to do that. He's, yeah. our, he's our exotics person. But. Bring your koi in. We'll take care of them. <laughs> okay. Um, here's another uh, thing about a uh, another is, example of where veterinary medicine has taken us into the future. And you've heard of gene therapy where they're trying to actually change the genetic makeup of the cells yes. to treat certain diseases. Mm-hmm. So in the University of Pennsylvania, they've gotten one step closer to a gene therapy for a disease called canine night blindness. Okay. Okay. It's, uh, the, the fancy name is congenital stationary night blindness, CSNB. Um, and a, a few years ago, they were able to actually identify that this, there was a this genetic disease in, in dogs that caused this because there is a genetic disease in people that are associated with this. And it's a, a problem with the um, communication of the retina to the brain. So the information from the retina is not getting passed along to the brain. Huh. And what they found is the defect was on this gene, and I looked the name of that gene up, is the LRIT3 gene. And it affects this protein molecule that's a, what's it called, a, a molecular channel protein that's normally on the um, ends of these cells that connect between the retina to the, the brain. And when this is not functioning properly, the signals aren't getting through. Huh. So the, the interesting thing is it does not cause any defects in the, in the retina. All the cells are there where they're supposed to be. The signals aren't just getting through. So they think if they can isolate this gene and get it through a viral vector into those cells, they'll start functioning again, and that night vision will return. Oh, so they could be able to start, like, pretty much vaccines or something, or not. Yeah, well, I think they, I don't know if it would be a vaccine. They'd probably have to inject this directly into the eyeball. Oh, no, 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 (laughs) (laughs) no. But, you know, if this is uh, one of those things, if this works and they can isolate this and get it to work, it's something that can maybe help people that have to suffer from this condition as well. So it's, and there's literally hundreds if not thousands of genetic diseases that they're Mm -hmm. looking at for treating this way. And so it it doesn't necessarily mean that having this genetic disease means your life's going to be miserable. You can go and correct these things and get off of medications and have normal lives. So um, I just think that's really amazing uh, what they're able to do. So um, we'll keep an eye out. 
<laughs> for lab uh, treatment when it comes and um, it's it's actually they, they did the genetic testing on a family of dogs that had this condition and huh. because they were so closely related they were able to be able to find the, the genes in dogs in their family that didn't have it and did and be able to tell where mm. the gene was that helped a lot now this next story I know uh, it was put out in, in a human journal and um, it, it talks about dogs and dog bites. Yeah. And this is one of the things that's a big uh, mm-hmm. thing at our clinic. And that there's a lot of dogs that are blamed for being aggressive. Certain yeah. breeds have bad reputations. Mm-hmm. And in this study, they found that they actually the most common breeds were mixed breeds. So there's really not any specific breed that they could point to that is dangerous to be around kids. In fact, what they found was... It's more the human's behavior around the animals that instigates this biting. And I can see that. And we've seen every breed of animal causing bites. Anything that has a mouth can bite. <laughs> um, I think there's like uh, 20 some million uh, dog bites a year. Or no, sorry, 4.7 bites right. a year. 20% of them need medical care. So that's almost a million. And most are and kids. Five to nine years of age. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I think the thing with that is most parents don't like teach good. I don't know, like, teaching the kids to be good hands-on with animals like that. Yeah. You know, like, you think you have a 100-pound dog who's great at home, and then you put a 5-year-old kid who's learning to pull things or jump on it or they think it's a big stuffed animal, and now you have an angry 9-year-old, probably senior dog mm-hmm. whose hips hurt or something, and their first well, reaction is, ouch, get off of me. I think the, the most uh, useful thing in this article is they did come up with some tips for dog owners to avoid the bites. Yeah. Obviously, you know, we don't want to say that a certain dog breed you avoid if you have kids. It's an individual dog. you got to look mm-hmm. at the individual dog's personality. But any dog is capable of getting startled and stuff. So mm-hmm. um, the first thing they say is most bites of children occur from the family dog yeah. when the dog is resting and the child mm-hmm. approaches it. So the dog gets startled. Yeah. And the first thing they do is they just turn around and they're, they use their teeth and they, they might bite them. Um, many of the bites of children occur even when there's an adult in the room. Yeah. So you just have to be really vigilant because uh, the animals aren't, I'm waiting to see till you're gone. Yeah, yeah. And if you have small kids, make sure they're separated. Make sure either the kid's in a, a pen or the dog's separated from them when they're playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just makes some common sense, uh, especially for toddlers. Yeah. You want to teach the children to, to leave a sleeping dog alone. So uh, waking a dog up from when they're sleeping can be just as bad as just approaching them and surprising them. Mm-hmm. Um, staying out of the animal's beds in the places they rest. In yeah. fact, they recommend if your dog likes to sit on the sofa... Put a blanket or a towel there, and that's where the dog sits, and the kids know they don't sit that's in that area. Shot. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, children should not touch or approach or interact with dogs while they are eating. Yeah. While the pets are eating, not the kids. Mm-hmm. Obviously, maybe the kids are doing that. <laughs> um, and then also, if their dogs are enjoying a rawhide or other flavor chew, they should only be given when the dogs are separated from the they children. And not do it in children play areas. Yeah. Uh, there are some dogs that love to play tug of war and stuff like this, but you never know until you really know your, your dog yeah. well. You just have to take these simple precautions. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is to teach the children that if the dog takes away a toy or some food from them, that they need to go find an adult to yeah. have that result. Don't try, to take it Don't try and take it back from the dog. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good way to give yeah. in. That's just asking for a fight. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't like the title of this article where they say they identify dog breeds and physical traits that pose highest risk. 
Um, but I think these tips that come out of here are really very interesting, yeah. and I, I wanted to pass those along. So if you're uh, concerned about getting a certain breed of dog, talk to your veterinarian. Mm-hmm. Um, there are always going to be dogs. Most dogs have to be trained to be mean, to be guard dogs. They're yeah. not that way. Um, many dogs get very protective about their owners, and that's mm-hmm. another situation we have to deal with. But I, usually it's the littlest dogs that seem to be the most protective to me. Usually they have that Napoleon syndrome where, you know, the world's too big and they're just not big enough for it. But, yeah, big thing with dogs. You know, you got to train the dogs, and you have to teach the kids to be respectful. Right. Like, it's, it's act, act like it's another human in the house. You don't take somebody else's food out of their mouth. You don't jump on another person while they're sleeping. Right. Treat the family pet as if they are another family member. They're not a toy. They are not a toy. They right. are a living creature. Okay. Um, this is something that I wanted to just add into our podcast. And this is fun things that are happening this next week in October or mm-hmm. the next couple of weeks here. So we're just finishing up Vet Tech Appreciation Week. You get a whole week. There's like one day for Boss's Day, but the vet techs get a whole week. I know one of our other vets brought in a lot of goodies for you guys, and mm-hmm. uh, we just had lunch today. So um, if you are at your veterinary clinic and see the techs, give them a thank you. They do a lot of the work. We can't do it without them. You guys are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> October 16th, uh, just the other day, was National Feral Cat Day. Huh. So that's uh, a way a day to, um, you know, there are a lot of organizations that will trap feral cats and make sure they get spayed, neutered, and mm-hmm. vaccinated. Um, feral cats are an essential part of the ecosystem. They keep the rat and mice populations down. Yep. So, you know, without them, there, there might be some more problems with that. Mm-hmm. Um, October 26th coming up is National Pitbull Pit Awareness Day. Um, uh-huh. So, again, this maybe ties in a little bit to the breeds that people think are, are associated with biting. Uh, pit bulls, I don't think, are any more biters than anybody else. Mm-hmm. I've seen so many pit bulls that are the most lovable dogs and wouldn't hurt a fly. Yeah. I'd go up to most pit bulls before I go up to any little dog. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not going to name the breed that I have a particular problem with, but whenever I see one of those come in, I'm a little bit more cautious. Uh-huh. Um, in the U- in the UK, the twenty seventh is National Black Cat Day. Ooh, getting ready for Halloween. Yeah, uh, and then in the United States, October 29th is just National okay. Cat Day. Okay. So that's that's one of my favorite holidays. I'm <laughs> taking the day off and take my cats out for some lunch or something. You gonna take them in the stroller? Yeah, sure. It's we'll, nice, we'll sunny. Have a nice, nice walk on the beach or something, you know. <laughs> All right, now comes my one of my favorite parts of the podcast: case of the week. Case of the week, and today's case of the week. Uh, we actually, you know, going through this morning, go well. We don't have a case of the week. What we're going to do? And then Zamboni came into the clinic <laughs> literally twenty minutes ago. <laughs> and um, I go, well, this is going to be our case of the week. And uh, so Zamboni presented. We saw Zamboni about six months ago, and Zamboni was diagnosed with early kidney failure. And the owner noticed uh, yesterday that his pupils looked dilated. Mm-hmm. And then the cat was wandering around the house and seemed to be okay, but then he noticed some other things that made him think maybe the cat wasn't seeing too well. The dog walked past the cat, and the cat just kind of sat there, like stiff in the air, like wondering what was going on, hmm. and, and tilting his ears. I'm and Confused. So we brought, brought him in, and sure enough, Zamboni is totally blind. Huh. So a couple things that um, when we have animals with sudden blindness that I like to check... One, we'd like to do a retinal exam, and what I saw was his retinas had actually become detached from the back of his eyeball. So they're pillowing out in sort of like this waving sheets of, of retinal tissue. Um, and it wasn't completely detached. It was about uh, 80 to 90% detached in the one eye, about 75% in the other. But it was enough that it was really interfering with his vision. Um, now, that can be associated with trauma. Can be associated with bleeding, and the biggest reason that you have bleeding behind the retina is high blood pressure in cats. Yeah. 
So we got out our blood pressure machine and we checked Zamboni's blood pressure. He was 260 over 165. So that's really high. We like to see a cat's systolic blood pressure be under 160. So he's 100 points above normal. Um, And his heart rate was very irregular. Um, He's in a condition called atrial fibrillation. So this is all new stuff since we last saw him six months ago. So this couple of things, it makes me uh, want to emphasize the uh, twice a year checkups, especially for older animals. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that, uh, are the things that I like to encourage with the six month visits for the older animals, mm-hmm. even for younger animals, but, and doing these sort of screenings for blood pressure and glaucoma. Yeah. Uh, we did check him for glaucoma. His pressures were on the upper end of normal, but not sky high with that. Um, but blood pressure was certainly very high and so- something we're going to need to follow up on. Yeah. Um, so we started Zamboni on some medication to help get his blood pressure down. And this medication is also a good medication for cats with kidney disease and heart disease. So okay. hopefully if, if the blood pressure could be the side effect of kidney disease, it could be a side effect of the heart yeah. disease. In any case, we need to get that blood pressure down. There is a chance his vision might return. Yeah. Um, but one of the things, people oftentimes don't notice their animals are, are decreased vision or blind until maybe they move around the yeah. furniture. Yeah, animals are really good at mapping out the house. Like, yeah. If you leave everything the same way for weeks and your dog has been blind for that long, you would never know. Yeah, it we, reminds me of Maud a couple weeks ago we talked yes. about. No eyes. No eyes. She can skunks. skunks and wreck. She can catch a treat in the air, but if you move a chair, she may hit it. I had a uh, little Sheltie, totally blind, could run around his yard at full speed, knew mm-hmm. exactly when to turn it along the fence. Uh, had this path worn into the grass from mm-hmm. doing this running. Just loved to do it. And you'd yell at him to come, and he'd just stop wherever he is and run right back to the back door <laughs> like he knew exactly where it was. So um, watch for your your pet's um, activity. So if they're mm-hmm. less active, if you see them bumping into things or getting caught in corners, take them to the vet. It may yeah. be something to do with their vision. Yeah, or even if you look in their eyes. Like yeah. sometimes just the cloudy eyes yeah. or if their eyes seem dilated or constricted, you know, that's a reason to go to the vet. I could I could see the, the detached retinas just with a light looking mm-hmm. in the eyes. So um, be aware of those things. Some yeah. of these things are treatable and reversible. Some aren't. I think the amazing thing is the dogs just don't have that emotional uh, problem when they lose their vision. Yeah. They just go on. Yeah, some, yeah. some might have a little bit of an issue with it, but if it's a, a gradual thing or, or something, they just seem to adapt very well. They're not too worried about catching up to the next movie or TV show or anything, so they don't really care. Just feed them belly rubs and a couch. They're happy yeah. that they can find their toy. Yeah. They don't really care. I remember seeing a video on Facebook once of this little dog was a seeing-eye dog for another dog. <laughs> I thought that was the coolest thing. All right, tech tips. All right, so this, um, I wanted you to talk a little bit this week because I had someone call talk to me about their dogs chewing up their woodwork in their house. Mm-hmm. And chewing things that they're not supposed to is a very common thing. You know, you yes. got the old stereotype of the dog chewing up the people's shoes and mm-hmm. stuff. So what are some things people could do to either stop them from even starting this behavior in the first place or once they've started doing it, getting them to stop? Well, one thing, and it's funny that you bring it up, uh, we actually spoke to somebody about this not too long ago, and she used a great analogy. She said, if you have a dog who likes to chew something, especially if it's the same thing, one thing is remove that temptation. Um, She said, as a person, if I put $20 in front of you every day and walked away, would you just pick up that 20 or would you leave it? I'll say most people said they were going to pick it up. So in your mind, that is the best training. I'm going to keep going to that person. I'm going to keep giving $20. For pets, that's the same thing. If they like to chew on chills or anything like that, 
don't leave your shoes out because to them that's that twenty dollars and they're like oh yay mom just left out my toy again don't do that it smells like you that's their connection um you know sometimes it is an anxiety thing um so there are medications where doctors can give them something if you're going to be gone for long periods of time but you know give them something to help distract them they can they have to chew toys um they have pheromones that you can spray in a room or plug into walls um you know making sure your pet is tired before you leave them in places especially if you know that pet likes to chew things um one of the girls here her dog chewed all the woodworks of her stairs and um yeah that can get expensive (laughs) yes and so chewing can get really expensive um and so we just had to get him a bunch of chew toys to help keep him distracted and you know luckily he started following around one of the older dogs in the house and so he's kind of losing that behavior something Um, else to keep him occupied mm -hmm, something to keep him occupied but you know sometimes when they're bored chewing is what they go to you know it's like with people you fiddle your fingers or you look at something and make shapes or something for dogs they chew it's a nervous habit it's a trained habit it's what they like to do Mm -hmm. so yeah it's a learned thing um or you can do something called yuck spray or like right. bitter apple. Bitter apple and mm-hmm. bitter mist is some of the ones that I'm yeah. familiar with from the old days. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that doesn't work because some dogs do appreciate the taste. Um, my old dog, I would spray it on his bed because there was one corner he liked to chew on. Right. And I would spray the bitter apple on it and he thought it was the best treat in the world. He ate the whole corner. Um, so I had to toss the bed because he was starting to eat the stuffing, but... I was like, well, that was a waste of $5. Right. Like, he loved the bitter apple. Um, so not every dog has that for an option. Okay. But I got him Kong toys, filled it with the cheese, treats, things like that. Um, just keep them occupied and, you know, keeping away the temptation. Right. If you know your dog likes it, you want something, keep that temptation away from them. If you have to put them on a different side of the house with a baby gate or something up, you can do that. Um, some dogs don't mind being crated for a few hours if you right. have to do that. And do you, do people find that if you do that long enough, then they won't come back and chew on the item, or is it pretty much you have to keep them from that all the time? It depends on the dog. Okay. Um, and again, I, I feel like it's going back to that analogy. You know, if you keep your wallet away from me for a few weeks, I'm going to learn I'm not getting money for you. But then you put out a twenty again, and I'm like, I'm taking that twenty again. <laughs> So it kind of depends on the dog. That's true, yeah. If, if the 20 stopped appearing for me for a year and started yeah. appearing again, I guess I would take I would get that, excited yeah. and That's take it back really again. Um, so it, it depends on the dog, and it's just one of those things I would try my hardest to not forget. I wonder if they ever them. come up with like a chewing gum for dogs to keep them busy. <laughs> I just have crazy ideas. Sometimes <laughs> they make sense, sometimes not. Okay. Um, well, thanks for that information. Yeah. And uh, again, talk to your veterinarian if you're having, sometimes it can be an indication of a problem in your mouth. Maybe mm-hmm. you have a bad tooth or something or something that you're trying to rub at or, or um, itch or scratch or, or massage. Or if you have a dog that does chew and they just randomly stop chewing. Yes. That's always an indication something's going on in there. All right. Speaking of chewing and teeth, next week we're going to talk about dental care, preventative dental care mostly, but the reasons, things you can do to keep your pets healthy and when and why you're going to need to have that dental cleaning under anesthesia. So that's it for this episode of The Pet Factor. I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. I'm Brittany. We'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to The Pet Factor with Dr. Jim Hosek and Brittany Reeves.